Okay, so today we are looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 36. And so let's open our Bibles today to that passage. And as I was reading all these verses, <laughs> it's a lot of verses, and I was reading this and I kept saying, okay, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? And I felt like verses 32 to 33 kind of gave a clue to that. And so who has Romans 11, verse 32? Oh, Carrie. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. I just feel like that's a clue. He's pointing us into a particular direction. And let's look at verse 33. Who has Romans 11 verse 33? I love this passage in the New Living Translation also. It says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. So to me, the bottom line for this passage in the most basic sense is God loves his people very, very much, and he has a plan to save them. And it is a plan that may be really hard for us to understand at times, and it involves the Jew and the Gentile alike. It involves God's chosen people, and it involves the rest of the, of the world also. And his plan is so awesome, showing God's brilliance and kindness to the entire world that Paul has to break out in a song of praise at the end. So to me, that was kind of the big idea in these verses. And if you remember from last week, Morgan used that example of the little block, the little building block, to show that Jesus could either be a stumbling block for the people of Israel or a building block. And that's a great example. So in these next 26 verses, Paul is going to show us in great detail, as Paul always does, how God's plan to save Israel actually involved Christ being a stumbling block and a building block. Warren Wearsby notes that all of Romans 11 is devoted to presenting proof that God is not done with Israel. So let's dive in and let's see what this plan is all about. Who has Romans 11, 11 to 12? Okay. So Paul, in typical Paul teaching style, he asks us a question. He says, is Israel beyond recovery? Is there no hope of salvation for Israel because some of them stumbled on that Jesus stumbling block and had their hearts hardened? And what's the answer? What's he? By no means. Some translations say absolutely not or certainly not. 
God is fully in control of what seems to be a big fat mess. Part of God's plan for part of God's plan was for Israel to reject him. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Well, maybe because Israel's rejection of God opened the door for God's mercy to fall on the Gentiles who believed in Jesus, thereby making Israel jealous. Think about it. God took something bad, the rejection of of Israel, um, of, of him by Israel, and turned it into something good, salvation for the rest of the world. Tim Keller notes that even though many Jews believed there was still a lot of hostility between or toward Jewish Christians, and if this hostility hadn't happened, many might have come to the conclusion that Christianity was only for the ethnic Jews. It would have stayed in the temple or in the family, so to speak. But because of this tension and, there, and this hostility, there was motivation to send the gospel out. So in order for the gospel to go out, the people of Israel had to reject within. I mean, what a crazy way to save the world. So remember last week in Romans 9, 10, and 11, they had all those Old Testament prophecies that were in there. And these, these prophecies were being fulfilled right before the eyes of the Jewish people. I mean, they knew their Bible. They, I mean, they knew their scriptures. So let's just look at a couple of them. Who has Romans 9, 33? As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And how about Romans 10, 20? And so not only were some of the Jews jealous of the salvation found by the Gentiles, but they're looking, and for those who are in tune with it, they're seeing prophecy fulfilled right in front of their eyes. Let's look at Romans 11, 13 to 15. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So I had to go through each of these chunks and I had to summarize them before I even started on this. And so this was my summary of this passage. Paul is saying, hey, you Gentiles. God sent me specifically to give you the good news, and in doing so, and as part of his plan, it will make some of Israel jealous of what you have so that they will turn back and be saved also. Part of God's plan for Israel was that they would want what the Gentiles had. And a lot of times we look at, the, we look at words like jealousy or envy, and we say that's a bad thing. But in this case, Israel envied the good things that the Gentiles possessed, and they wanted that salvation for themselves. They wanted the power of the Holy Spirit on their side. 
Who has uh, Deuteron Deuteronomy 15.4? Yes, and God had intended for Israel to take care of the poor. But guess what? Guess who was doing it now? The Gentiles were doing it now. Tim Keller writes, The Christians, under the power of the Holy Spirit, were being generous and creating community in which every needy person was cared for. That was what Israel was supposed to do. They saw the good deeds the Gentiles were doing, that the priests themselves were actually supposed to be doing. It seems that the priests saw it and were envious and convicted and listened to the gospel. And as a result of the Gentiles now, some of the Jews were saved. And in order to drill down on the details of God's plan to save his people, Paul uses verses 16 to 24 to offer an object lesson using an olive tree, branches, and grafting. But first he talks about a lump of dough. So let's look at the first part of uh, verse 16. And some commentators say this verse is hard to interpret. So who has Romans 11, 16? So there is kind of a general agreement and all the, I read a bunch of different commentators about this dough and what, what it meant and most of them agreed that this is referring to the practice of the first fruits that's detailed in Numbers chapter 15. Who has verses 17 to 21? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough shall give to the Lord as a contribution. You shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generation. So the first fruits offered to God were considered holy, which made the entire batch holy, meaning the entire batch belonged to God. Warren Wiersbe says that the basic idea is that when God accepts the part, he sanctifies the whole. God accepted Abraham and his descendants, and they were holy in spite of their sins and failures. Some commentators think that Paul is referring to the first Christians as the first fruits of God's harvest of men. But then in the latter part of verse 16, Paul starts talking about trees. He says, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. So let's look at Romans 11, verse 17. Yes. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? The root of the olive tree represents the patriarchs. 
God made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These roots are holy and set apart. The olive tree branches are what? The Jews, the people of Israel, God's chosen. But some of them have been broken off. Why? Why, why were they broken off? Yeah. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected him. They stumbled over him, that stumbling block. They stumbled over that stumbling block. And they were unrepentant. And what are the wild shoots? The Gentiles. They saw Jesus and believed they were not originally part of that olive tree. They weren't part of that holy and set apart um, tree. Woodrow Knoll or Kroll says the Gentiles being wild olive trees have been grafted into the life of the Abrahamic root in place of those dead Jewish branches that have been discarded. It's a picture that I can, re like, I can really see this in my mind. And I couldn't help but think back to where, I mean, Jesus even used this. I am the vine, you are the branches. As long as you stay connected to, to me, you know, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a concept that we can understand. We, we understand that. Um, but let's talk a, a minute about grafting. Hope Blanton, in her study on Romans, says that when an olive tree stops bearing fruit, one of the ways to reinvigorate the fruitless tree is to graft in a wild olive shoot. This will stimulate the further production of fruit for the entire natural plant. Again, can't you just see it? The, the olive tree is not producing any fruit. So you cut off the dead ones, you cut off the dead branches, you add in this young, wild, you know, branch. I mean, I see it. It's probably like it's going off this way and it's got all this stuff happening on it. You know, it's exciting. You graph it in and the tree starts to, to produce fruit again. And so we see here that Paul is using this olive tree grafting process on an object lesson on how the rejection of Jesus by the Israelites has allowed the Gentiles to be brought into the family. They're grafted in and they're bringing good fruit. He's essentially saying in verse 17, you Gentiles are like wild olive shoots doing your own thing. But the olive tree cultivator, that's Jesus, saw you out there. And after pruning all these dead branches off, those in Israel who don't believe, decided to graft you in their place because you stand in faith in Jesus. And in doing so, you now share in the nourishing sap from the root. I mean, it's a beautiful picture and it's a very, it is just so clear to, to see and understand this. This is a lot easier for me to understand than the dough and the lump of dough. That one's harder. This is, I, this is easier to understand. But as Paul gets into verse 18, we see him issue a warning. Who has Romans 18 to or 11? Romans 11 verses 18 to 24. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Phew! That's a lot. It is a lot. Phew! It's a lot. I that, and then I thought, you know, God doesn't need me to do his good work. I need God to do the good work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing good in us but him. I mean, truthfully. So in this passage, it's like Paul is saying, it's great that you Gentiles have come into the family. This is awesome. But don't you get big headed. You aren't any better than any of the original branches and don't think you could get pruned either. Stand firm in your faith. Stay connected to the root. And in all of this, Paul says, consider the contrasting kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell or who got cut off, but kindness to those who had faith and are grafted in. But he said, he said, Paul is saying to the Gentiles, but hey, you, he could be stern with you too. He could cut you off if your faith fails, but he could also be kind to those who he had originally cut off. If they come in, you know, if they can be grafted back in, if they come to the faith, it's both a warning to the Gentiles and an encouragement to the Jews. Gentiles, stay vigilant. Jews, there's hope you can return to me. And now as I read this, this is, I started getting confused a little bit and I'm like, is he talking about losing your salvation here? I mean, because he says, you know, hey, hey, you Gentile, you could get cut off. Stead, stay, you know, stand fast. Um, so I had to research that a little bit. Warren Wiersbe says it would be incorrect to assume this illustration is a picture of the big C church. Because he says believers are all one in Christ. And God does not look on members of Christ's body as Jew or Gentile. The breaking of the branches here is he's talking about and its consequences. He's talking about the consequences of the fall, the breaking of the branches. They fell away um, and not the individual destiny of any one particular um, believer. Tim Keller further explains it this way. He says there is no talk of losing salvation here, only the the revelation of counterfeits. Paul is telling the Gentiles that they need to continue in the kindness of God, which means, as he says, we continue, we persevere in seeking to be like Jesus until the day we meet Jesus. If that continuing disappears, if we start to live for ourselves and live in sin, then we will and should begin to wonder if his kindness is upon us if we were ever chosen in the first place. So those are the ones that Paul is saying could be cut off, those counterfeits. 
Gentiles need to have faith in Christ and not be arrogant. That's, that's kind of the point here. All right, let's look at Romans 11, verses 25 to 32. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will bash ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So to kind of summarize this passage, Paul is warning his Gentile friends again, don't get the big head that, that they get to be part of the olive tree and Israel is cut off. Paul reminds them that this is all part of God's plan to save his people. He's already determined how many Gentiles will be left into the family. And one day, according to his perfect plan, all of Israel will be saved. He will take away their sins. He says, remember, Israel belongs to me as my chosen people. I love them. But since they rejected me, they became my enemies, just as you Gentiles are my enemies. I decided to have mercy on you and let you become part of my family, and I will have mercy on them when they return to me as well. God allowed the disobedience so that he could have mercy on everyone. That's that verse 32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And just a few clarifications here on all. Okay, all usually means what? All. all. <laughs> um, but we have to be careful in this situation in that assumption. Verse 32 makes it, sounds like, make, makes it sound like everyone's going to be saved. But that doesn't fly with the rest of Scripture. Um, you know, not every person is going to be saved some will face eternal damnation. They will. I mean, that is a fact that you read the Bible cover to cover. You cannot escape that. God is not a universalist. He's not. And so my man, Tim Keller, had to help me out again on this. Um, and he says, verses 30 to 32 teaches that God is not showing a preference he uses the Jews to reach the Gentiles and the Gentiles to reach the Jews. All people have been disobedient, yet all people's, plural, group, will find God's mercy. The mercy is coming on all without distinction rather than on all without exception. So that means that Salvation is available to the Jewish people. Salvation is available to the Gentiles. But not all will participate in it. 
Those whose hearts are hardened toward God and who refuse to repent will be held to account. And so can I just point out that in all of this, the rejection of the Jewish people, the grafting in of the Gentile, the jealousy of the salvation of the Gentiles leading to the salvation of the Jews is all part of God's plan to save his chosen people. All of it. All of it. Again, I say, what a crazy way to save the world. And that leads us right into Romans 11 verses 33 to 36. I mean, like, Paul is just super excited at God's kindness and mercy to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles. So he breaks out in the song. He's like, look at how deep your wisdom and knowledge are, God. It is more than I can comprehend. Have you ever seen anyone as amazing as our God? No, no one has ever even counseled him. Is there anything we can give him? No. Why is he doing all this loving stuff for us? For him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Let's go. Warren Wearsby says, Having contemplated God's great plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles, all Paul could do was sing a hymn of praise. Only a God as wise as our God could take the fall of Israel and turn it into salvation for the world. That's awesome. You know, Paul had to have been a brilliant person. I mean, he absolutely had to have been brilliant. His writing is on a level far superior to mine. I mean, he is is way up here. But I appreciate and I can see the excitement in all the words he uses. In my mind, I imagine Paul getting really excited as he is sharing these verses in his letter. I imagine him becoming more and more animated until that climax in verse 36. He's like, hey, you Romans, don't you see that you are part of God's great plan to save mankind? It started with his love of his chosen people. He loves them. He made promises to the patriarchs and he plans to keep them. And guess what? You get to be part of that plan. The bad news of his rejection of him is good news for you. You get to be part of this family. God is going to use you to call his first love home. Isn't that amazing? Now be careful though. Don't get complacent. Just as he cut off Israel for unbelief, you can fall away too, but stand firm. Look at how God can take something bad like disobedience and turn it into something good. There is no one like our God. His ways are far higher than our ways, and for him, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is my summary of all those verses into something small and concise. So um, I hope that my teaching today has brought some clarity to this passage. Romans is hard. Romans is hard. I mean, you can't just read through this 
one, you know, in one little pass and get it. It's hard and it's okay to say that it's hard. Um, so I, my hope today is that I took this passage and was able to make it into something that you could understand. So um, that's all I have for today. And...